Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nations and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his, its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. This is a weird place to drop us. If you're familiar with scriptures that are connected to Advent at all or Christmas time at all, you've probably heard this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father language. Um, But I very much doubt many of you have really dug deep into where that comes from, right? Those, Those are really nice titles for Jesus that are good and right to apply to him. But when we start to look at where they come from and why they're applied to Jesus, it gets so much richer. As with everything with the Bible, the further you dig, the more rich it gets. The further you dig, the more glorious and wonderful it gets. And so we're parked here early in the book of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah goes on for like more than 60 chapters. It's a long book. So the ninth chapter is kind of early in the story of Isaiah, and we're going to figure out where we're sitting here in just a minute. But first, you got to understand something about the Old Testament and the nations of Israel and Judah. So Israel is the collective name for all the people of God. They are, it is the, this geopolitical nation that was created, but really it refers to all the people that God has adopted as his own who share an ethnicity, they share a bloodline, they're, they're all one family, and God established them as a nation long ago. And early on in Israel's history, they didn't have kings. They had judges. Basically, God was the king over the people of Israel, And then when some major crisis came up in the life of the nation, God would raise up someone called a judge who would lead the people through that crisis. But judges were really only there for these various crises. They they weren't long-serving kings and rulers over the nation. That was supposed to be God. God was the king of Israel. God was the king of God's people. Only over time, Israel starts looking at the nations around them, and they see the power of the nations around them, and they're like, we want to be like them. We're tired of this judge system. We're kind of tired of a crisis rising up and not knowing who God is going to call to lead us through this crisis. We want one consistent leader we can see. And God is kind of like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I'm your king. 
I'm, I'm the ruler. Like, you know me. I've given you myself to lead. But the people want someone that they can see and touch. And so God tells the prophet Samuel, go ahead and anoint a king. There are these people called prophets who speak on behalf of God. God speaks to them. They speak on behalf of God to the people. That's what a prophet does. So Samuel is kind of the lead prophet back in his day. And God speaks to Samuel. The people have come to Samuel and said, hey, Samuel, um, we want a king like the other nations. And Samuel warns the people all the things God had already said about why they didn't want a human king. A human king was going to rule over them, and a human king would oppress them, and a human king could lead the nation into apostasy. A human king could lead the nation away from God. And so God over and over warns the people, you don't want a king. Finally, the people come to Samuel. Samuel goes to God and is like, God, I've told them everything, but they continually want a king. And Samuel's really dejected about this. He's taking it personally. And God literally says to Samuel, don't take it personally. It's not you they've rejected. It's me. In the very act of wanting a human king, the people had rejected their God who was supposed to be their king. And even though God had warned them over and over, there's another aspect to the king of the nation that you have to understand that really gives us foundation for understanding who Jesus is and what he does. The king is not only the leader of the nation, the king is almost a substitute for the people. As the king goes, so will the nation go. So as the kings are leading the nation and the kings are worshiping other gods and they're worshiping pagan gods and they're, they're going about and they're doing really immoral, awful things, they lead the nation in that same way. The king is a substitute in many ways for the people for the people that they lead. And so God judges the nation of Israel based largely on the leadership of the king, of the person in charge, because as they lead, they're leading the nation away from God. And over and over and over in Israel's history, this happens. The king comes to power, power makes them sick, and they lead the nation astray. Over and over and over in, in Israel's history. And so at first you've got this one nation of Israel that's ruled over by the one king Saul and then the king David and then the king Solomon. And then after Solomon, things kind of fall apart. And then you've got the children of Solomon at war with one another. And so the kingdom of Israel, once one unified nation, splits. And you've got the kingdom of Israel in the north and you've got the kingdom of Judah in the south. And so now what was supposed to be one people and one nation is now two nations. And over more history and over the course of time, the leaders of each of these nations, some are good, most are evil. And they're leading the people astray. And it gets to the point, finally, that God raises up the Assyrian Empire, one of the most brutal empires that's ever existed. And he uses Assyria to judge the northern nation of Israel. And so Assyria comes in and they basically wipe out Israel. They cart off all its leaders, they take the people away, and they essentially destroy the nation of Israel. So all that's left is Judah. And that's kind of where we are here at the beginning of Isaiah. There's a king named Ahaz who rules in Jerusalem over Judah. And they've watched Assyria come in and wipe out Israel. They've seen the power of the Assyrian army and they know that Assyria is coming for them. And that's what the prophet Isaiah is warning them about. Isaiah is saying, hey, Ahaz, Assyria is coming. 
And if you will pledge yourself to God, if you will listen to him, if you will follow and obey him, he will rescue you from Assyria. But what does Ahaz do? Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. Isaiah goes so far as to tell Ahaz that he can test God. Now, you are expressly forbidden from testing God in the Old Testament. You don't test God. You trust him. You believe him because God is trustworthy. Isaiah goes so far as to tell Ahaz, the king of Judah, hey, man, if you don't believe what I'm saying, you can test God and he will respond. He's given you a pass on this one. You can test him. And Ahaz says, no, that's all right. I'm going to trust in our neighbors to the north in Syria. I'm going to trust in my military alliances to keep us safe from Assyria, which I've already seen wipe out Israel. And Isaiah just kind of hangs his head. <laughs> but Isaiah comes, leaves this conversation with Ahaz, which he has on the walls of, Ju- of Jerusalem. And he's just, he's just sad. And so Isaiah goes on to prophesy some more and to, to tell of the coming invasion. Now that Ahaz has rejected the help of God, rejected faithfulness to God, chapter 8 of Isaiah is all about the invasion that is coming to take over Judah. Assyria is coming. They are going to win. They're going to besiege Jerusalem and they're going to take them out. And so that's what chapter 8 is. Chapter 8 is this prophecy from Isaiah, this very sad prophecy. You can imagine, Isaiah's not happy about this. No one in the Old Testament is ever happy about pronouncing God's judgment. God is not happy about pronouncing his own judgment. These are his children. These are his people. He doesn't want to see them hurt. He doesn't want to see them harmed. But in order to draw them back to himself, in order for them to understand just how reliant on God they must be, they have to undergo God's judgment. And so God allows Assyria to come in. But God never in the Old Testament pronounces judgment without a promise of restoration. I would challenge you to go through the Old Testament. A lot of us have this image of God as this mean grandfatherly, but, but angry, like cranky old man, you know, like, I don't want you kids around. Like he's always going to smite them and put them down. And yet never once in the old Testament, does God pronounce judgment on his people without also promising a day of restoration. This is God's mercy at work. This is the wedding of grace and truth. As we talked about so many weeks ago, God must judge his people. He must be true to who he is and to who he's called his people to be. God cannot just be a permissive parent who allows his kids to do whatever they want because he knows they'll destroy themselves. But always God promises them a future. Always God promises them hope and restoration. And that's what chapter 9 is of Isaiah. So in chapter 8, Isaiah has prophesied the destruction of Judah, the, the, the invasion of Assyria, and the overtaking of the nation of Judah by Assyria. And now in chapter 9, Isaiah is going to prophesy the hope to come. So that's where we are in the timeline. You've got to understand that to see where we are, to understand what Isaiah is pointing to, to really understand who Jesus is and why he came and why it's so glorious that he has come, not only for ethnic Jews, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. So now we enter into this prophecy. And it's kind of funny because verse 1 in our Bibles is actually the last verse of chapter 8 in the Hebrew Bible. Because it's the, it's the last bit 
of the prophecy of Assyria coming in. But in the English Bibles, we've moved that verse from the last chapter of the last one of chapter eight to the first one of chapter nine because it's kind of a bridge. It's kind of a bridge between God saying through Isaiah, look, Assyria's coming, God's going to use them to judge you, but here's the hope. But restoration is coming. And that's where it begins with, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. So here's what that verse means. He's saying, your judgment by Assyria, God's using of Assyria to judge you, won't be like when he judged Israel with Assyria. You won't be wiped off the map. You're going you're gonna to exist. You're going to continue to exist. In the Old Testament, this is called a remnant. There will be a people who will continue on. You, you, this is not total destruction. This is not totally wiping you out. There will be a hope. And then he goes on in the second phrase of that verse to say, but in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Now remember, Isaiah is talking to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Right? This is only part of the original nation of Israel. And so outside of Judah, you've got all the places that Israel originally inhabited. You've got the area of the north, Galilee of the nations. You've got the area east of the Jordan River. And then you also have the way of the sea. And so these are the areas that Israel occupied, that God had given to his people. And what God is saying, what Isaiah is saying in this second phrase is, it's not just Judah that God is going to restore. It's not just Jerusalem and the little nation of Judah that exists right now. God is going to restore everything that's been taken from you. Everything. Because when God restores, when God gives back, he brings it all back. God is not in the business of partial healing or partial restoration. God restores it all. He drives all the oppression out. He drives all the sickness out. He drives all the pain away. He takes it all. And so Isaiah is letting the people know, look, it's going to be bad for a while. But God has a plan to restore not just you, but all your brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles and cousins. He's got the whole family in his hand, not just you. He's going to bring them all back. And so that's where we start then with this prophecy, with the poem, the part that we actually read at Christmas time so often. And so this is really broken into three parts. We're going to look at these two verses at a time. We're going to take verse two and three first. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. These verses are simple. They can be summed up this way. Hope is coming. And you might go, well, now wait a minute, hold up, because this is in the past tense. And read it again. Like, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land. This is all past tense. So what is going on here? This is a promise of the imminence of God's hope. We don't use that word a lot in our current language, right? In our current vocabulary, imminence is not a word that comes up very often. Imminence means it's on the brink. 
It's coming. It's a sure and solid hope we can have. The reason that this is in the past tense, even though it's referring to future events, is to drive home that this is a sure hope. You can put every bit of your hope in this. All your eggs can be in this basket of hope. You hold on to this because God's promise is sure. It is firm. It will not fail. God is so certain of his future for you, he can talk about it in the past tense as though it's already done. And that's a promise you can take to the bank. That's a promise you can hold on to for your people, for the church, and for you. God is so certain of his good purposes and plans for the church, for the people of the world, for you particularly, that he can talk about it as though it's already done. That's how firm God's plans are. That's how solid God's plans are. And that's how good his purposes are for you. So right now, we are a people who walk in darkness. Now, you got to understand, the people who he's talking to here are walking in darkness because of their own sin. They're walking in darkness because they've rejected God. They're walking in darkness because they've rejected his prophets, because they haven't listened to God. They haven't been faithful to him. And so now they have Assyria at their door, and they got this dumb king who won't listen to God and be faithful to him. And because of their unfaithfulness, the people are walking in darkness. And that situation holds true for you and me today. We walk in a dark world. We live in a world of darkness because we have rejected the one true God. Because we've said, God, I don't need you. I can rely on my other alliances. I can rely on my other relationships. I can rely on this and that and everything but you, God. Why? Because I can see these people. Just like the Israelites crying for a king that they could see instead of the God that they couldn't. We look to the things that we can see and the things that we can hold and we put all of our hope and our security in the hard things of the world rather than listening to the God who's beyond our sight. We want to hope in stuff we can hold on to. We want to hope in our money and in our security and in our job and in the people that are around us. And we want to hope in a culture that has rejected God because it tells us we can have what we want without any consequences. We want to hope in all of these things because we can hold them, we can see them, we can feel them, and we're not entirely sure that our good God is really there. We're not entirely sure that God is trustworthy. Because we can't see him the same way. We can see all this other stuff. And so like the Israelites crying out for a king, we try to hold to every physical thing that we can that will fail us. These things that ultimately only lead us into darkness. They can't provide light. They can't lead us into the light. They can't provide healing. They can't drive out the oppressor. They can't heal our wounds. They can't fix us. But it's so easy to hold to the security of money. It's so easy to hold to the security of the things that we can hold on to. It's so easy to not work against a culture that says your God is irrelevant. It's so easy to go with the flow. And so we walk in darkness. We walk in darkness because we hold to all the things that are not our light-giving, life-giving God. Just like Judah, just like King Ahaz, 
just like the people who called for a king. We're calling for the things we can see. But here's the hope. When God arrives, he brings light. He shines light into the dark places of our hearts. He shows us just how weak those things that we're trying to hold on to really are. He shows us just how weak all of the things of the world are. He shows us just how dark the darkness really is. You see, you don't realize just how dark it is until a light shines in it. You ever gone on a cave tour? You ever been in a cave and, and you get down into the cavern and they shut the lights off? Right? And, and you don't really experience full darkness. It's, it's like when we walk around our house at night, right, we think it's dark. We don't realize just how much ambient light there is around until you go to that cave and you step into that cavern and they shut the lights off and you can't see anything. You've got nothing. And then if you're standing in there, inevitably the tour guide will light a lighter or a match. And that one tiny light can light up an entire room in the cave because there aren't any other lights there's nothing else to compete with it. And you see, a lot of us are looking at the baubles of the world. We're looking at these tiny little lights, and we're thinking that there's something really bright. We're thinking that there's something that will light up our lives. And we don't realize just how weak they are compared to the floodlight of God's grace, compared to the floodlight of God's love. We can't even fathom how weak our little lights are. So God is saying, I'm coming in and I'm the light. I'm going to bring the light that will light up your world. Blinding light. And this light will shatter the oppressive yoke. It'll shatter the rods. It'll destroy the oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. So we're stepping into these next two verses, verses 4 and 5. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every tramping boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now Isaiah is promising here, look, Assyria is going to come in and they're going to be strong and they're going to be powerful and you know just how brutal Assyria is because you've seen what they've done to the other nations around you. But the light is coming. And when God himself comes, when God himself shows up, he's going to drive away Assyria, just like he did Midian. Now, you got to know what Midian is, right? You're kind of lost right now. <laughs> you got to go back to Judges chapter 6 for this. Right? So back in Judges chapter 6, I told you earlier that in the early years of the existence of the nation of Israel, they didn't have kings. They had judges that were brought up during times of crisis to lead the nation through the crisis. And there was this period when the nation, the people, were not being faithful to God. Does that sound familiar, right? They were walking in darkness. And so God sent this other nation called Midian to conquer his people, to bring judgment upon his people. And he let Midian rule over Israel for seven years. This is back in Judges chapter 6. So check my story. So Midian is wicked oppressive to Israelites. They're not allowed to, to, they have no freedom. They're not even allowed to thresh grain without permission from the Midianites. They're not allowed to provide for their own meals without permission from their overlords. 
For seven years, Midian oppresses Israel. And finally, God says, okay, the time is up. I'm going to call somebody to drive away the Midianites. And he calls up this guy named Gideon. You might have heard the name Gideon. Now, Gideon is a nobody. Gideon is absolutely nobody whatsoever. In fact, when God calls him, Gideon is on the threshing floor, and he's doing this in secret. He's threshing out grain in secret so that the Midianites won't know, and he won't get in trouble. And so God calls to Gideon, and Gideon says, whoa, I'm from, like, this no-name family, and I'm the youngest of them all. Like, I'm nobody. I'm not the oldest son. My family doesn't have any authority or power. Who are you calling, God? And God says, no, you're my man. And so this is one other time in the Old Testament where God allows somebody to test him. And so Gideon says, well, God, I, I, need, I need confirmation of this. So you might have heard the story of the Gideon's fleece. Gideon has this, this sheep's fleece, and he prays, and he says, okay, God, if I'm hearing you right, I'm going to lay this fleece out, and in the morning, if the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, I'll know you spoke. So he does, and it happens. And he says, okay, one more time, now I'm going to lay it out, and if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then I'm going to know you spoke to me. And, of course, it happens, and God allows Gideon to test him to make sure that he is hearing and understanding God. And so Gideon becomes a judge of Israel. And he comes up and he's got to put together this army. You can read about this in Judges 6 to 8. He's got to put together an army. And so he gathers some people and God gives him a test to give to the men who are coming to fight in this army. Gideon basically puts out the call and says, hey, we're fighting against Midian. Who wants to come fight with me? And all these men show up. But Gideon's got to whittle it down until he's got 300 people. Now, there is no way this force can take over the army of Midian. There's no way they can beat them. But God whittles down the number of men who have come until Gideon's got this small army of men to go out and fight. And they do. They go out to fight, only they don't really get to because the angel armies of God defeat the Midianites. It's an entirely miraculous victory over the oppressors of God's people. God's people don't even really have to stand up and fight because God has fought for them. And here in Isaiah 9, when we read in verse 4 that God has shattered the oppressive yoke and the rod on the shoulders and the staff of the oppressor, just as he did on the day of Midian, what Isaiah is saying is that you can't even imagine the salvation that God's gotten planned for you. It will be entirely miraculous. There will be no way that you can take credit for driving out the Assyrians. There will be no way possible that you could take credit for winning your freedom, for winning your salvation. It will be entirely on God. You can't do it. You won't be able to do it. God's salvation will be so miraculous, so unexpected, that there's no way you could ever take credit for it. And doesn't that sound like the story of Jesus? Doesn't that sound just like the story of Jesus? Jesus comes in the flesh. He comes as God to us, God wrapped in human form. And he comes preaching and he comes teaching. And he ultimately lets the Roman government and the Jewish leadership kill him. And this is the way of our salvation. Entirely unexpected. Entirely miraculous. We can't take any credit at all for the salvation that is ours through Jesus. 
And God is saying here in Isaiah, when your restoration comes, when your salvation comes, you won't even be looking for it. It will be so unexpected, so miraculous. There's no way that you could say, we did that by the might of our arm. And there's no way you can say, God loves me because of what I've done. There's no way you can say, God loves me because of who I am and the great things I've done for him. There's no way you can say, yeah, I won my salvation. That is all on God. It is all his work, not mine. And that is a glorious thing. I mean, that is a great thing. Because it means I've got no pride in this thing. I've got no right, no call to hold my salvation and hold my place with God over anybody else. No call to stand over someone else in judgment and say, well, there's no way God could love you or care for you. Or there's no way that God could take you out of that situation because I didn't do it for me and they can't do it for them. It is all on God. His restoration and salvation comes only by his power and by his calling. And so finally, we come to the last piece. God is coming. Now, so far, we haven't heard how this is going to happen. So far, we've only got promises from God. Restoration is coming. God's going to drive out Assyria. He's going to drive out the oppressor. He's going to restore the nation. But how is he going to do this? And that's where we come to these verses here. See, a lot of us, we read this backward because we know the end of the story. And so we start out with the end already in mind before we read it. But for the original readers, for the original hearers of Isaiah, they're like, well, this sounds good, but how's it going to happen? How are you going to do this, God? And here he goes. Verse 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. That means king. Just to translate for you, the government will be on his shoulders. He will hoist it all. He will hold it all. He will bear all authority. He is the king. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. Now, we've just moved from the restoration of Israel to the restoration of the world. The dominion will be Vast. It will spread out, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Here we have the promise of the coming king. Now, there's this crazy thing about Old Testament prophecy, about but foretelling prophecy, is that you often have multiple fulfillments, right? Because prophecy never means something that it didn't mean to the people who originally heard it. Let me rephrase that. The people who first receive a prophecy, it's got to mean something to them. It's got to have some meaning for them right then and there. And if all this really applies to is Jesus, if Isaiah is only talking about the coming Messiah, it doesn't mean much to the people who are actually there, the people in the time and place. And so what this is, what, what people would hear this and they would go, there's a good king coming. There's a great king coming. There's a king who's going to be faithful to God and reign and rule in peace. And he's going to bring about God's favor because he's going to rule us as God intends. 
And for those reading not long after this, they would think of the king Hezekiah who would come after Ahaz. Ahaz was a terrible king. Led people into subservience to Assyria. Refused the help of God. But after him would come a king Hezekiah who is faithful, who is honorable, who leads the nation into peace. And so for the people originally hearing this, they would look to Hezekiah and go, yes, here's that king like David. Only Hezekiah wasn't perfect. Hezekiah fell short. And ultimately, the land would end up in disobedience to God again. Ultimately, they would be taken into exile in Babylon, some other brutal empire that would come along later. They themselves would fall disobedient. So Hezekiah couldn't be the forever king. He couldn't be the everlasting king. He couldn't be the good king that the people needed. Because all of our hopes of righteousness cannot rest on anybody else. All of our hopes of righteousness cannot rest on any human person. We can't rely on any other mere human to make us good. To be perfect and righteous and holy with us and for us. There are a lot of people who are staking their claims for salvation, they're staking their hope of salvation on someone else. Someone to lead them. There have been a lot of people showing up in church for a long time who think that by sitting there and listening to a particular preacher, they're okay. That they're good. That God's got them. Because of the person that they're connected to, because of the pastor they have, because of the person they follow. There are a lot of people reading books right now, who are putting all their hope, not in Jesus, but in the authors of those books. There's only one king who can fulfill all of our hopes. There's only one king worthy of all of our trust. There's only one king who can actually save us. And it wasn't Hezekiah. And it's not the author of those books. And it certainly ain't me standing here. His name is Jesus. And so even though this prophecy meant something to the people in time, over the course of years and generations, the people of God would look to these words and they would say, wait a minute, this can't just be about Hezekiah. This can't just be about some human king. This can't just be about whoever would come after Ahaz. This can't be about Josiah who would restore the nation. This has got to be about the eternal king. This has got to be about the one king who can lead us into perfect salvation forever, who will never fail the one who is truly worthy of these titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And so the church looks to these. The writer Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, looks to these words in Matthew chapter 4. And he says, this is about Jesus. The light of the world, as the Apostle John wrote, the light that had come into the world, and though it was rejected by the world, brought salvation. Jesus is the only true light to look forward to. He is the only one who is worthy of these titles. He's the only truly wonderful counselor, that strategic planner who can lead us into victory over the oppressor, who can take away our sin and give us power and authority over our sin, over the brokenness of the world. He's the only one worthy of the title Mighty God, the one who stands opposed to all of the things that oppose us, 
The one who defeats all the stuff that stands opposed to us and stands against us. He's the only one worthy of the title eternal father. He will not die. He will not fail. He is entirely trustworthy. And he is the only one worthy of the title prince of peace. Because only he has destroyed the powers of the world that war against his church. Jesus is where our hope belongs. Now, we live in a representative democracy. We live in a world where we elect our representatives and we elect the people who will go to Congress or who will go to the, the legislating bodies and represent us. And we do this with regularity, two, four, six years. We re-elect people to represent us. We got no idea what it is to live under a king. We've got no clue what it is to live under a king who... What he says goes. Who rules us. Who reigns over us. Who is worthy of our full, unqualified allegiance. There is no one in government today who is worthy of your full and unqualified allegiance. No one. Jesus is our king. It is to him that we give our eternal, uh, our eternal allegiance. <laughs> it's to him that we bow the knee, and he orders all of our other relationships. He sets the steps of our lives. He determines where we go and what we do and who we say it to. He determines everything about us because he is a good king, because he is a righteous king, because he is a kind king, because he's the only king who's ever laid down his life for you. Every other king in history has said to his people, lay down your life for me. And Jesus comes to us and says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for you. Because we are the many. We are the many that Jesus came for. He's the only king who ever laid down his life for you. He's the only king worthy of your unqualified allegiance. And he's the only king worthy of you stepping into his presence and saying, do with me what you will, Lord. I'm yours. And that is, at the end of the day, all that the Christian life is. It's pledging allegiance to our good King Jesus and giving him full access to every corner of our lives. Allowing him the say over everything we do. Rejecting our human kings, rejecting our human securities, rejecting all the things of the world that we are tempted to put our security and our hope in, and instead saying, Lord Jesus, order my steps. Lord Jesus, prioritize my relationships. Lord Jesus, you tell me what goes. You tell me how to use this stuff. You tell me how to live my life. You tell me how to love my neighbor. You tell me what to do, and I will do it. That is unqualified allegiance to our good King Jesus who laid down his life for us and took it up again to promise us the life that only he can give. You see, for now we walk in darkness, but our light has come. And dim as the light of Christ may seem at times, Dim as the light of his kingdom may seem at times because we still live in a fallen and broken world with our dimmed eyes. Dim as the light of Christ may seem, there is coming a day when it will be undeniably bright. 
There is coming a day when the light of Christ will no longer be deniable. It will no longer be rejectable. We will all bow our knee before King Jesus and we will give him ourselves. That day is coming. In the meantime, it is up to us to bow our knee before our Lord Jesus, to bow our knee before our King Jesus and say, I'm yours, Lord. I forsake my sin. I forsake the call of the world. I forsake everything that would take me away from you, and I belong to you. Today is the day to make that proclamation. Today is the day to bow your heart before King Jesus and say, I'm yours, Lord. Remove everything in me that would separate me from you. I only want to be yours. Today is the day to make Jesus king of your life, to allow him to be the supreme authority over everything. I promise you, it's worth every minute of it. It's worth everything that comes to give your life to the only one who can bring you eternal life, who can light up your life in the midst of a dark, dark world. Let's pray. Good Lord Jesus, good King Jesus, teach us to be subjects of yours. Teach us as we bow our knees right now to live for you as Lord and King, as master of our lives, the Savior King who laid down his life to save us from our sin and from the effects of the world and to give us new life, to give us whole life, to give us joy and peace, to lead us into green pastures where we will thrive. Lord Jesus, today we bow our knees before you. Lord Jesus, I surrender my sin. I surrender my life. I give it all to you as my good king. Forgive me, wash me clean of my sin, and make me yours. Ready and willing from now on to live for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 